Life Christian Centre is a church located in the city of Adelaide. It is made up of people from different backgrounds and walks of life who have been transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us online at www.life-church.com.au Uh, Shane is from uh, Charleston, the USA, and has been in full-time ministry for uh, over 20 years. Uh, he's an itinerant minister that ministers in countries all over the world, and um, he's mentored by a pastor with rabbinical training and teaches the scriptures from that kind of perspective. He's uh, a great communicator of the word, has great insight into the word, and um, has the ability to help us see familiar passages from a completely different perspective. Uh, everyone I've ever spoken to uh, about Shane has always said they've been amazed by the teaching and above all else been impacted by the Word of God and being able to see the Word in a completely different way which has helped them in their walk with God. I know that God is going to speak to us here tonight. Um, will you give Shane a big, big welcome as he comes to teach the Word tonight? Thank you. Good evening, everybody. It's so good to be here with you. If you're the type who likes to follow along in an actual Bible, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to get there in just a second. It's an honor to be here with you and, um, and to meet my new friends. And thank you, Pastor Joe, for extending the invitation and for Pastor Danny to making the introduction and uh, my friends and my new friends that I'm making here tonight. Pastor Joseph, you made my life easier tonight. Thank you for that. And uh, for the team here uh, that helped with everything so quickly, uh, thank you as well. Um, for those of you who don't know me, which would be all of you, this is all I do for a living. I travel around and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored, like, like Pastor Joe said, by a pastor with uh, some rabbi training. And uh, all my stuff sort of comes from that bent. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I am qualified to sort your head out. So careful what you say to me afterwards. I can see through all that stuff, all right? On your way out in the foyer area there, we'll have a resource table set up, um, USBs and direct downloads, video, audio. If you walk out there and can't find my resource table, seek medical help. It's taking up half the room out there, right? And if you wonder, why would you do that? The reason is, is because we make a lot of money from it, okay? And the reason we do that is because we live with the conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so 100% of what we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats, right? So that's what that goes for. And so, um, and so if you come on out there, uh, everything's going to be, I can make it appear on your phone, you have USBs, it's all set up out there. Just come out and say hello. Let me put something in in your hands that have changed the way you look at God, and you, you, you put something in my hands that helps me feed, clothes, shelter, educate mentally handicapped kids. I, I think that's a pretty good um, trade. So any anytime I speak, I want a couple things to happen. I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I want us leaving tonight with more questions about the scripture and not less. I want us to fall in love with the Bible again. I love the Bible. I've given my life to studying it. I've given my life to communicating it in the most interesting ways possible. Right? And so when you open a scripture, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? Now, engaging the purpose of your Wednesday night service, 
I found that what, I, what my takeaway was, was this was a Bible teaching night, right? That you guys come together and study the Word, right? So I'm going to take the role of a teacher, and I want to open up a passage from the book of Revelation. So in November, I decided to take on the book of Revelation, largely because it's so easy and straightforward, right? And so I decided to do that, and, and what I found was amazing, right? So just a quick context before we read this. The world in Revelation was run by a man named Domitian. Domitian was a Roman Caesar. Let me, let me see if I can summarize it in four sentences. There was one world government with one world currency, and that government was controlling how people were buying and selling, which then put the people underneath the boot of that government under horrendous oppression. Now, folklore has it, I don't know if this is true or not, but folklore has it, that Domitian got sick of John and he tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, the pro which would have been practiced in that day. The, the, the thing is, is that he survived it. And so if a guy survives a government-run execution, you don't want to try to kill him again. Because if he survives it twice, people will start thinking God is on his side. And so how do you do? What do you do? You get rid of people like that. And you exile them on islands. And so that's what's happened. So John's exiled on the island of Patmos, and he's writing a seven, he, he's writing a letter that's going to get circulated to seven places. Seven real people at real places at real time living under a real oppressive thing. And in the book of Revelation, if nothing else, it follows the pattern of our life. Here's the book of Revelation in five thoughts. There's a call to repentance. You've, you've heard that the world is run under the authority of, of Caesar, and Caesar is God in flesh. And I'm here to tell you, he's not God in flesh. If God actually came in flesh, it wouldn't look like that, oppressing 99% of the world. It would look like somebody lifting the lowly to the level of the elite. It would be, it would be like Christ, a, a God who chose not to be God in order to identify with the suffering of the common person. It would be that. And there is an invitation to repent from that narrative to this narrative, from the kingdom of Caesar to the kingdoms of this Christ. That's one, it's a call to repent. Two, two then th there's people who say yes to that, just like us. And then those people meet horrendous tribulation and horrendous resistance because you can't come against the basic narrative of how the world works without having resistance from the people profiteering from how the world works. And then there's five calls to worship in the book of Revelation where the new narrative gets reaffirmed and we commit our life again to this new narrative by repenting that this was about how we're living on this earth to exalt the risen Christ over the narrative of the world, in, in namely King Domitian. And so it's about King Jesus against kingdom Domitian. And there's all of these things that put those things in contrast. And, and I wanna open up one to you tonight with the goal of making the Bible come alive, Jesus get bigger, the cross work better, the resurrection be central, scriptures get bigger, not smaller. I also want to celebrate a big, celebrate a big part of Italian culture with you, right? I want to sort of bring some, some story around that. I, I got to preach last year for the first time in Rome. I got invited to Rome to preach. And, um, and, and, and when I was in Rome, I found out the importance of the dinner table to Italians, <laughs> right? And, and I did things I've never done in my life, like eat dinner at 1045 at night. The, the, the pastor said, uh, he, he said, where would you like to eat tonight? And I, I said, oh, look, I'm in your world, bro. You just take, you take me to wherever you like. He's like, okay, well, we'll have church at 8, and it'll get done about 9.30, and then we'll go eat at 10. I'm like, flip, bro. I, I'm like, can we, um, can we eat at like 6? And like, and like be at church at like, say, 7.30? The pastor looked at me and went, why would we do that? 
there would be nothing open, right? I'm like, well, hey, when in Rome, come on. So 1045 at night, and, and, and what I want to open up tonight is how beautiful that is. And I want to, um, I, I want to give you some beauty that I, I know you know it's beautiful, but maybe I can put some language from the scripture around it to help us. So this is Revelation 3, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. So in the narrative of the, of, of the risen Christ, it's I'm knocking. This is directly opposed to the narrative of Domitian. In, in Christ's narrative, Christ knocks and waits for you to open the door to him to welcome him in. In the narrative of Domitian, Domitian's not knocking on anything. If he wants in your house, he kicks the door down. If he wants you to convert, he sends his military in and they do forced conversions and forced allegiances and forced loyalty. This is a diametrically opposed narrative. Essentially, John is saying, which narrative would you like to live under? The narrative of Domitian, who does things by forced confession, or the narrative of the risen Christ, that although he could, he humbly knocks on the door and waits for you to open it. And when you open it, what does he want to do? Does he want to instantly clean all your life up? Doesn't seem to be the case. He doesn't seem to be worried about how dirty your house is. Doesn't seem to be. He doesn't seem to be worried about what's behind the door. He seems to only want to eat. See, this is the problem with some of our cliches, right? I think they're, I think they're well-meaning, but they're problematic. Things like God cannot be around sin. But the problem with that is, is that it seems to me like the only thing God does is enter into darkness and bring light. He enters into disorder to bring order. He enters into chaos to bring new creation. It seems like the narrative in scripture is that God does not avoid things like that at all. Rather, he engages it with the purpose of bringing beauty and new life and second chances and fresh starts and mulligans and the opportunity to write a better story. He enters into that moment. It doesn't even seem like God God avoids death. If death is a problem, well, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to die and I'll defeat death by bringing resurrection. So the narrative of scripture is that God is not threatened with our stuff. God just wants to eat. God is not threatened by our darkness. God wants to bring life. God is not threatened by our disorder. He wants to engage it to bring order. God is not threatened by our chaos. He wants to engage it to bring new creation, fresh starts, second chances, new life, mulligans, clean slates, and the opportunity to write a better story. It seems like God just wants to eat, which leads to this question. Next slide. How do we define intimacy? I, I would say intimacy is two things simultaneously. One, to be fully known. And two, to be fully accepted. If you don't have both, you don't have intimacy. It's to be fully known and to be fully accepted. There's a lot of people who are fully known, but because they're fully known, they're not fully accepted. And we all know people like this. This is who I am. Take me or leave me. Of course, most people will leave you, right? So they're fully known, but they're not fully accepted. Then there's people who are fully accepted, but they're not fully known. If people knew what they were hiding, they wouldn't be fully accepted. So intimacy is when you have both at the same time, fully known and fully accepted. Next slide. The primary question in the first century is what must I do to be fully known and fully accepted? And the world's answer was, go to the right temple at the right place at the right time in the right ritual and in the right posture, and maybe that God will respond to you being in the right place at the right moment at the right time in the right posture doing the right ritual. That might work. But the gospel of Jesus Christ was never that. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ that it was that while we were even hostile to God, God always acts first to make peace with us. That God is always making the first move. That Jesus is always making the first move. This is why any message of the gospel that says you have to do the right ritual at the right place, at the right moment, at the right time, in the right posture, and then Jesus will respond to you is not the message of Christ. It doesn't matter if there's a 25-foot cross over the top of the building. That is not what was going on. What was going on in the risen Christ was while we were hostile to God, God was acting first. First, be that being nice, be that knocking on the door, be that being a peacemaker, and he waits for us to respond. He humbly allows us to be in control of the situation. Why? Because control is the opposite of love. So Jesus doesn't do control. The question was, is what must I do to be fully known and fully accepted? And in the first century, it was which temple, which ritual, which posture, which place, which time. What must I do to do that? Evidently, John is presenting something that the answer is God just wants to eat. Now, there is something else going on here. So let me, let me show it to you. Next slide. So there's a play on words. In ancient Hebrew, the word for a meal is a shul. So if you had a plate of food, that is a shul. A table is a shulkan. So this is a shulkan. A shul is the meal that you'd put on top of it. So you eat a shul on top of a shulkan. Now here's where it gets pretty cool. In ancient Hebrew, there's only like 8,000 words. So lots of words had to mean different things, right? So the word for table was shulkan. The word for reconciliation is shulkan without one letter difference. The word for lambskin is shulkan without one letter difference. Why? Because these people came from Egypt. And when they were slaves in Egypt, they did not have a table to eat on. So what they did is when they killed a lamb, they would clean the skin, spread it out like a picnic blanket. And so the lamb skin was the original table. So you see how like in Psalms where it says, we all know it's the blood of a slain lamb that gives us reconciliation. That could easily be translated, we all know it's the blood of a slain lamb that gives us a table to eat on. So translators had to decide the context. Is this an actual table? Is this some sort of symbolic reconciliation? Is it talking about lambskin? What are we exactly talking about here? But here's what was going on. Anytime in Hebrew culture there was a shul on a shulkan, underneath the idea was we are reconciled. See, in the first century, you didn't eat with people of a lower class than you. Domitian would never eat with someone lower class than him. The first century high-class Roman Empire, they had nine classes in the Roman Empire. Class two people didn't eat with class eight people. And that, that seeped its way into Jewish culture. How many times do you see the religious elite getting mad at Jesus and the thing they got mad at him for was what? You're eating with tax collectors and sinners. You are, why? Because in Jewish culture, to eat at the table meant you were declaring we're of the same class and there's nothing between us. This was a brilliant thing. Now, the way Hebrew works is on three-letter roots. So three-letter roots, shulkan, S-H-L-C-H-N-N. But, but look at the three-letter root, the shalak. Shalak was to forgive. So the word forgiveness, the word reconciliation, the, the word shalak literally means to remove weight, to, to, to take a burden away. So if something's burdening you, you bring it to the table and you leave it there. This was a brilliant way to think it. Now, let, let's say it this way. Next slide. In Jesus's world and in Jesus's way of seeing the world, because remember, Jesus is not somebody to believe in. 
It's more perfect. You can't relegate Jesus to a bullet point on a pamphlet. No, Jesus is not simply somebody to believe in. Jesus is a fundamental way of seeing our whole world. And in Jesus's way of seeing the world, the meal was primary even over worship. Look, look at what he says. This is Matthew 5. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, worship, and there remember that your brother ha has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled. Now, Matthew was circulated in Greek, but Jesus certainly would have spoken it in Hebrew. In Hebrew, he would have said, first go and be shulkand to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, if you're worshiping, and you remember that there's something between you and somebody else, first go and have a meal with them and then come and communicate with God. Why? Because what difference does it make if you understand the mysteries of nine heavens with God if everything you understand about God doesn't translate into living with each other in such a way that if outsiders saw how we treat one another, may the risen Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about our side of the story, right? That's the idea. The idea is that if somebody from the outside saw our conversation may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about something the meal was primary over worship this is Paul's version of it this is in 2nd Corinthians next slide therefore if anyone is in Christ that's us he is a new creation there's that newness again it's a reference to Genesis 1 when God enters into chaos he brings new creation when God enters into disorder he brings order. He doesn't go into your house and judge the dirt. He fixes it up. It's that. It's new creation, fresh start, second chances, the opportunity to write a better story. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God. Who reconciled us? Now, Paul's a Jew. He's writing this in Greek, but he's thinking like a Jew. Who tabled us? He shulconned us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of the table. So, so the, the primary ministry of the church is what? Table fellowship. It's an offer. It's an invitation. Come, whatever's weighing you down, let's bring it to the table of reconciliation. Let's bring it there because we have the ministry of reconciliation. I have some good friends in Detroit, Michigan. They're, they're pastoring in, quite frankly, a war zone. And, and, um, and they've given their life to the poor and the afflicted in the middle of inner city Detroit. And what they found was, was that there was a lot of people in inner city Detroit who couldn't go to church. They just couldn't stomach it. And so for whatever reason, whatever their experience was, they weren't going to go in a church building to experience church. So here's what they did. They, we were talking about, I was talking about this with them. So here's what they did. Outside of the church over to the right, they built with their own hands a custom-made 60-foot table. And they call it the table of reconciliation. And here's what they did. They went to their neighborhood and said, listen, if you can't come to church, we don't, even, we don't even care why. We honor the fact that you can't go to church. Here's what we're asking you to do. Instead of going to church, would you come to our table service where we have a meal together and we want to hear your story, right? And people started coming. They started feeding them at this table of reconciliation. And all they did at the table was they said, tell us your story. Tell us what burdens you. Bring your story to the table. And now their table service is three times the size of their regular church service. They're to do three in a day and what they did is they built a garden around that table and so anybody that wants to take their next step with Jesus they go to the next place in the garden and they plant a seed and then they go to the next place in the garden 
and they plant a seed. And they've seen hundreds come to Christ at a table who would not step foot in church. This is the ministry of reconciliation. Watch what he says. That God was reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ by not counting men's sins against them. In other words, is your house dirty? Still open the door. God is not threatened by your disorder. He wants to enter into it to bring order. He's not threatened by your chaos. He wants to enter into it to bring new creation. That, that it's not about judgment. It's about how can I enter in? If God could handle the primordial chaos before the foundation of the world and bring new creation, what more could he do with our little bit of chaos if we submit it to him? That we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ by choosing not to count men's sins against them. And then he committed to us the message of reconciliation, the message of the table. So here's what I did. I did a word study through scripture about the word table. And then I found it everywhere. Now, let me see if I could trace something through scripture. Let's do a bit of Bible study. Next slide. So there's this one time, there's this guy named Abraham. And it says that Abraham was living in a world where five kings were fighting for. That's called World War I. Five kings fighting for. That's a big deal. And eight, they're both sides are pressing Abraham to take their size, to take their side. And, and it says that Abraham had an encounter with a guy named Melchizedek, the king of peace. And Melchizedek says, yeah, let's not take sides. Let's set a table and invite everyone to eat. Conflict and escalating violence is not the answer. The table is. There's this one time, there's this guy named Jacob, and there's all kinds of deception going on. He lies to his brother. He tricks him out of his birthright for a bowl of beans. And then he lies to his dad to get the blessing. And then, and then he ends up getting lied to. And there's all kinds of stuff going on. He tells a man named Laban, I want your daughter. And Laban says, you have to work seven years for my daughter. After working seven years for his daughter, he ends up marrying the wrong daughter. Which leads me to this question, how much alcohol has to be involved for you to work seven years for the hand of a woman and you don't realize you're in the tent with the wrong one come on bro and he ends up he ends up with all of them and then there's so much deception he ends up leaving Laban and th this is the situation he leaves Laban Laban gets mad and chases him Esau gets word that he's coming and you have a conflict sandwich you have Esau coming from this way Laban coming from this way and you have a family civil war fixing to break out and if you go read the story what did they do they looked at each other and said instead of fighting each other let's serve the food. Let's sit at a table together and be reconciled. In Psalm 23, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is not about God feeding me and not them. This is not about us and them. This is about when there is conflict, God is always preparing a table, making a way for us to be reconciled to people in conflict. That actually Jesus said it this way, third sentence into the first sermon he ever preached, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the sons of God. In other words, the first criteria Jesus ever gave for what it meant to be a child of God was our basic disposition in conflict, inviting people 
to a table. There's this one time where there's this guy named David, and there's this war, and Saul kills himself, and David usurps the throne through all kinds of means. It was supposed to go to Jonathan, but then God said, no, 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 it'll be David, and Jonathan was happy to let him have it, and Jonathan dies, and David's put on the throne, and what would have been customary was for the new king to find all the relatives of the old king and make sure that there would never be an uprising, and of course, that doesn't happen. David asked if there's any relative of Jonathan that he could show kindness to. And evidently there was one and his name was Mephibosheth. Now listen, if your mom, would you agree with me? If your mother named you Mephibosheth, you're already starting behind the eight ball in life. It's like, what were you thinking? Mephibosheth, come on. Now watch this scripture. This is the second Samuel chapter nine. Next slide. And the king asked, is there's no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness to? And Ziba answered, well, there's still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled. In both feet. If you go read the story, in the war, this nurse picked up this kid and ran and tripped and broke his legs. And because medical technology wasn't what it is today, this kid ends up crippled. Well, where is he then? And Ziba said, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel. Watch the place. In Lodabar. Lodabar means no bread. It's a play on words. It's like he's in a place where there's not a table. There's no, there's no reconciliation. There's no meal. He's in a place of no bread. Watch what happens. So King David had him brought from, from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Anuel. And, and, and Mephibosheth, uh, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't, don't be afraid. In other words, what you think is going to happen, not going to happen. And David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. That's a lot. He was the king. And you will always eat at my shulkan. <laughs> In other words, whatever, uh, whatever's between us, it's not. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to slide you under the table so that the table of reconciliation covers your wound. It covers your flaw. And I'm going to give you an opportunity for a second chance, a clean slate, a fresh start. We're going to enter into your disorder and bring order. We're going to enter into your chaos and bring new creation. We're going to enter into that because that's what God's called us to do. Uh, next slide. There, there's this guy named Joseph. And 11 of his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt, only to later need him to save their sorry behinds from a famine. No food. And they end up in Egypt not realizing it's him. And then when they realize it's him, it is a problem because the Egyptian guard would have been standing behind the brothers and all Joseph would have had to do is give them this sign and everybody's dead. Joseph had a decision in that moment. Do I take vengeance and kill my brother? Or do I do something more profound? Watch Genesis 43. Watch this. Then Joseph hurried out. For his, compare, his, his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Can you imagine? You imagine waiting to find out if you're going to die or not. And you hear the guy in charge wailing. This is uncomfortable. This is anxiety provoking. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, what does he say? Serve the food. Serve the shul. Hey, we got a shulkan? Good. Let's serve the shul. Hey, what you meant for, for evil, God intended for good. Let, let's put all this underneath the table. Let's remove all the weight. Next slide. There's this Passover. So here's what happens. This group of people. So Joseph gets sold into slavery. 
he ends up giving his family land in Egypt. And then they started having babies. And those babies had babies, and there was more babies, and then there was babies, and then there was more babies. And there's babies upon babies upon babies, 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 and babies, and babies, and babies, and babies, and babies. And they, out, they, they overpopulated Egypt. So the Egyptian king, a guy named Pharaoh, he does the only thing reasonable. And he, he enslaves them. So 430 years later, God raises up a, a, a deliverer named Moses. And he says, get these people out of slavery into freedom. And before they left, now God has not opened his mouth in 400 years. God has been silent for 400 years. And the first thing out of his mouth was, before you leave, kill a lamb and eat together. Before you leave, kill a lamb and eat together. Why? Before you get out into that wilderness, whatever's between you, get it all on the shulchan. Let's get all reconciled. Let's not get out there in that wilderness hating one another. Let's get it all on the table. Before you get out there, make sure you shulchan. Then they get to the wilderness. And you see it again. This is just before an incident called the golden calf. But before that, what are they doing? Well, to be fair to them, Moses has disappeared. They're in the middle of nowhere with no leader, no temple. The, 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 the tribes around them could think there was no God to protect them and they could have come and attacked them. And so they start panicking and they start clamoring for some God to worship. They start clamoring for something, right? And you can't really blame them. It's sort of a scary situation, but they start clamoring. They start melting gold, intending to build golden cows. They start doing this stuff and God knows it. And he sends Moses down. And it's a scary sort of thing. He sends Moses down to get them. And he says, I want Nadab and Abihu and the 70 firstborns of Israel up this mountain right now. Now, if you just got caught red-handed by God preparing to idol worship, and he calls you up a mountain, that is frankly terrifying, right? Like, that's going to be the slowest walk up a mountain ever, you'd be right? There's no way. Watch God's response at the top of that mountain. This is Exodus 24. Next slide. So Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was something like a table, shulchan, made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and they drank, and they did not die. <laughs> In other words, God's response to their idol worship was, you done? You want to eat? You want to put this behind us? I don't want to go, I don't want to go establish a nation with you with something between us. Can we, can we eat? Can, can we put this on the shulchan, and then let's move forward? It's almost like God was always compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness. It's that. Next slide. Then there's Jesus, who seemed to be insistent on having dinner with tax collectors and sinners, which in his world would have been saying, there's nothing between us. We, 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 we're of the same social class. Look at the scripture. Next slide. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners. Well, why? Matthew was a tax collector. Came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, why is he declaring them of, as the same class as us? Why is he saying this is okay? Watch what Jesus says. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
In other words, I'm not interested in the ritual. I'm interested in your heart. That ritual, see, people cop stuff out, and, and, and they'll say things like this. I'm not into religion. I'm into Jesus, right? Well, hang on a second. Religion, bad. Jesus, good. Okay, but hang on a second. Religion is not bad if religion is doing what, a, what religion is functioning to do. Religion at its best provides rituals for us to do that reminds us of what's already true. Religion gets bad when the rituals become the inauguration of that truth, right? So when we're doing rituals, that's good as long as those rituals are reminding us of what's already true. But when the ritual makes something true, it becomes idolatry. It becomes a problem. Like, let me give you an example. Communion, right? When you take the bread, the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ, right? How big is God? Huge, right? He's holding the whole universe together. But Paul said that, that the risen Christ is holding everything together. That if it's in existence, it's being held together by the risen Christ. And that's part of the mystery, is that the God that's big enough to hold the universe together is also big enough, it's also small enough to hold that wafer together. And part of communion is realizing that the God that's big enough to hold the universe together is also small enough to care about what's in my stomach. And the beautiful part of communion is this. Is, there's a lot, but the beautiful part of communion is when we remember what Christ did is when we eat that bread, if you're rich, if you're poor, one body. If you're black, if you're white, one body. If you're male, if you're female, one body. It is a reminder that the Christ that holds all things together is inviting us to a table to be reconciled for the whole world. And this is the ministry we have been entrusted with. Then remember there's next slide, there's the feeding of the 5,000. Obviously, it's a metaphor for a lot of people. No one was going one, two, three, four. It's like a heaping load of people. And Jesus says, they said they're hungry. He says, you give them something to eat. In other words, offer them the shulchan. Remember there was the Canaanite woman? She was, from, she, she was from a place called Sidon. And here's the problem. In the Bible, there are six verses in the Old Testament that say all Sidonites are cursed. It's a story that goes all the way back to Ham. And Ham, cursed his, Ham uncovered his father's nakedness. So his father cursed him. Even though God, if you go back and read the story, God blessed all of Noah's children three times. But a drunk, hungover dude cursed somebody God was blessing, and it stuck. And so the Jews believed that the Sidonites, the descendants of Ham, were the cursed people. And in this story, the Sidonite woman shows up, and she asks for crumbs. She says, I know because of who I am, I'm not allowed at the table. You guys would never accept me as the same class as you. But don't dogs get crumbs? Watch what she says. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. In other words, in other words I'm sitting with people who have the whole table and still can't believe. You have enough faith to know all you need is a crumb of reconciliation and that's enough. That's the kind of faith I'm looking for. It's the crumb of reconciliation. Let's say it this way. Remember the, the rich man and Lazarus? Remember that centers? Remember Jesus? Don't, don't lose the context of that parable. Jesus is sitting at the home of a rich man's table, and at the end of the meal, there's plenty of food. And he says, what should we do with the extra food? And they go, we don't know what to do with it. And Jesus goes, hmm, there's a lot of poor people outside of your gate. I wonder what we should do with all the extra food. And they go, we don't eat with people like that. Why? 
because that would have been calling them the same class. We don't do that. And Jesus said, is that your final answer? And they said, yeah. He goes, let me tell you five stories. The kingdom of God is like a shepherd with a hundred sheep. If one is outside the gate, you go get him. The kingdom of God is like a lady with a coin and you seek it out. The kingdom of God is like a, a guy that loses his son. And when he comes back, you cook him a meal. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? The whole point of that was around a food sharing situation where the elite were not willing to share their food. And he tells a story about a guy that ruins his life and comes back. And the father says, serve the food, serve the meal. The meal is important even over worship. And then he says, oh, by the way, when rich people overlook poor people outside their gate, when they die, those are the people that go to hell. My goodness, this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. The Lord's Prayer. Remember he says, give us today our daily bread. It's actually, to be fair, that's a terrible translation. In, In the Greek and in the Hebrew version of the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us today transcendent bread. In other words, give us today a bread that even after we're done eating it, we know that we have no fear that you'll feed us tomorrow. It transcends the thing. It's actually about forgiveness as well. Like the Lord's Prayer, this is how it says it in English. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In Hebrew and in Greek, it says, my Father who's as close to me as the air that I breathe, I stop and become aware of you. Your rule be done your will be done here as it is in your realm. Give us today transcendent bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. In other words, always give me every day the mechanism and the supply I need to make sure I'm reconciled with others. Make sure I don't have bread. Make sure I never run out of bread so that I can always be forgiving and be forgiven with other people. This is about how we treat the world around us. John 21, remember, uh, Peter has denied Jesus three times. And what was Jesus' response? He cooked him breakfast on the beach and invited him to eat. So in Revelation 3, Jesus is knocking, wanting to eat. Look at how the book of Revelation ends. This is Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Like this this is my thought. This is the personification of discipleship. Active teachability moving more and more and more to the vision God has for us. In the book of Revelation, the garments are a gift, but they're validated by our life. The garments are a gift, but they're validated by our life. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The entire story ends with God inviting us to Shulchan. The meal is still being offered. This is Revelation 22. Down the middle of the great street of the new city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nation. In other words, in the new city, in front of the throne of God, is a constant flow of shul and shulkan and an invitation to continually be reconciled with God and with one another. That the the table is private. Now listen, great teaching is not meant to be agreed with. So if you go, wow, I I totally agree with you. Sort of not the point. Nor is it meant to be disagreed with. Great teaching is not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. Great teaching is meant to be wrestled with. 
So, so let's, let's wrestle a bit. The best way to wrestle is with questions. Let's wrestle a bit. Next slide. When is the last time you responded to the Lord's knocking? Has the Lord been knocking at your heart for you to respond and you've been resistant? My question is, why? What are we scared of? What, what we find in this passage is God just wants to eat. That God is not threatened by your disorder, your chaos, your darkness, your sin. That God is not somebody that's going to shy away from those things. God is someone who is willing to engage those things in order to bring beauty and order and new creation and fresh starts and second chances and the opportunity to write a better story. The invitation is, will you put your trust in Jesus's version of your life story instead of the one you've been writing on your own? It's that. It's that. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Are you committed to the reconciliation of all things or just your own salvation? I, I, I love the way Isaiah says it. He says, it's but a light thing that you have salvation. The heavier thing is that you be my salvation to the world. In other words, the outside world, sometimes the only picture they have of what reconciliation is being offered is how we treat each other and what we offer to them. If an outsider ever sees us in conflict, may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about our point of view. May that be our testimony. Number four. Is there anyone that we need to cook breakfast for? <laughs> Is there a conflict? Did we enter into worship 40 minutes ago? Did we enter into worship 40 minutes ago fully knowing there's something between us and somebody else? And in so doing, we violate the basic way Jesus saw the world. Jesus said, if you're entering into worship and you remember there's something against you and somebody else, what good is that? Go first and make it right with them and then come back and engage in your worship. May we be people that when we engage in the rituals, that it's not an inauguration of a new reality. It is actually becoming aware of what God was always up to. Rituals in their best form make us aware of what's always true. That's true of worship. I think we put entirely too much pressure on worship leaders. Just with our language, we go, come on, worship leader, bring the presence, you know? And the worship leader's up there going, where did he go, right? Worship in its most pure form is not something. Does worship inaugurate the presence of God? I hope not. Actually, worship's been going, or think about our language. Worship starts at 10. What? No. Worship's been going on since before the foundation of the world. And at 10 o'clock, we get to enter into what's always been happening. And we get to cancel the white noise of our week and become aware of that. The best worship leaders you've ever known are not the people who inaugurate the presence. They're the people who get us to cancel the white noise of our week long enough to become aware of what God's been up to all along. I bless you to know that Jesus is not the inauguration of a new reality. He was a manifestation of what God was always like since before the foundation of the world. May we be people who embrace that. I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to know you serve a God who believes in you more than you believe in him. I bless you to know. I bless you to know that. I bless you to know that Jesus is bigger than you think. The cross works better than we all think. That the scriptures are more rich than we all think. May we be people to do that. I hope tonight Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection central. May we not just embrace the Jesus that lets us to heaven one day. May we embrace the call of Jesus to be the, the message of reconciliation to the world. May we invite people to be reconciled, starting with the people on our right and on our left. May that be clear in how we live.
Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. Lord, we bring our conflict and our pain. We bring our concepts to you. Lord, would you speak to our hearts now about who we need to cook breakfast for? And we say yes to you again. We say yes to that reconciliation. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your night. Um, I count it an honor. I'd love to build a relationship with you. Um, I, hope, I hope the scriptures did something powerful for us tonight. And so may, may we find ourselves in that. Until I see you guys next time, let's be the message of reconciliation. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Come on, let's go stand, church. Jesus. Come on, worship the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We, you, we just praise you, Father. Thank you, Father. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. So here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, come in and eat with him and eat with me. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? We know that scripture. We've heard it so many times. But what a wonderful take on that scripture. The power of the table. So I think what we need to do now is we just need to go and eat. I think that's really what we need to do right now. The power of the table is just powerful. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you that every time we open your word, it's, it becomes alive. It comes alive into our hearts and into our lives. And Father, we don't want to just walk away saying it was a good word. Speak to us about the things we need to do. Think, think, speak to us about what needs to change. Speak to us about tomorrow, Lord God. Father, we don't want to enter into worship, Father, while there's issues that need to be reconciled, Father. Speak to us by the Holy Spirit. We want to be a people of God that worship and glorify and honour you, Father. Speak to us by the Spirit of God, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.